everybody. Welcome back to Girls Like Us. This is the podcast that ventures to answer the question, what does a literature degree get you? And we posit that uh, what a literature degree gets you is a podcast about books for children. I'm Sophie. It's my birthday. By the time you're hearing this, it won't be my birthday. But if you want to send me money still, like pretend it's my birthday. Yeah. I, I posted on Instagram. I was like, what are your favorite things about Sophie? And the first response I got was, she's not afraid to disagree with Franny. <laughs> Which I think is weird. Like, is that my the main thing? Like, do I antagonize people to quote the, to quote oh my the book gosh. that we read today? Okay, yeah, you're a real Carmen and I'm a real Tibby, I think. And I'm I think one, yeah. Neither of us are Bridget or... Um, what do you Lena. mean? Like, we're not totally driven by impulse? Like, <laughs> we're not, like, so fucking unbearable that, like, people are, like worried about us all the time. Yeah. I liked the character of Bridget. She reminded me a lot of, and I texted her about it. I don't know if she's listening, but um, one of my college roommates, Allie, just like mm. blonde, beautiful, athletic, very nice. So I had a soft spot for for Bridget. Um, I didn't care about Lena, though. I uh, sh- She was very boring to me. Lena? She is like a very Alexa. You can see why they cast Alexis Alexis Bledel. Bledel. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Lena is bad representation for Greek chicks everywhere. As a Greek <laughs> woman myself, I, like, I don't, I take issue with this idea. Like, most Greek women don't act the way that Lena does. Not to essentialize, but it's like, we are out here doing things, you know, we're do we we do things differently then I don't she's not representation for my people like Lena let's see everything is very like she she's for Greek she's fake for Greek. Greek fake Greek yeah if you didn't catch that we're referencing Fanish how Massey mm-hmm. calls Alicia fake Spanish Fanish in the click she's for Greek she it's just like the way that she carries herself and everything is like well I know I'm beautiful so like I cannot trust anybody because they're just trying to I like, know get with me like that to me that worked in the context of the character but do Uh I personally like her no I'm like how beautiful does like that's always weird to me when in books are like this person is so beautiful that people will do anything for them because how often in life do you meet someone who's like that hot that people you would do anything for them to them all the time um maybe it's because she has no personality so people are just kind of like like projecting whatever on top of her. But I'm like, I don't think also because, you know, I think beauty is so subjective, subjective in a lot of cases, even though there obviously are standards, but uh, it just doesn't ring true to me. I I agree. It's just, yeah, it's odd when that's like the main way. That being said, neither of us have had that experience. Well, speak for yourself, honey. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, how could anybody be beautiful? Like, what does that even mean in this society? Like, for personally, I haven't experienced it. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, I'm. I think if we had that experience, we would not be having this podcast. Right. Exactly. I think we're both. I think we are both beautiful. However, I don't think we had high school boys constantly trying to fuck us. Yeah, like at our feet, being like, "I will do your laundry." I guess before we get into it, was there anything else we wanted to discuss? Well, I'll admit this on the main feed. I watched the uh, the Red Scare movie last night, the Red Scare Jeffrey Epstein movie. Oh, really? But I, I did you pay for it? No. Okay, okay <laughs> it's not that's out fine, yet, then. technically. Yeah. How did you get a link to that? Mm. Okay, I have my ways. So yeah, I'm not supporting them monetarily, and you know what? Not good. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it's you know, not good. Oh, really? <laughs> no way. Meg's uh, out of town. Uh, so you know what I do when the old ball and chain is away? 
<laughs> watch a movie from uh, people who I don't like. Damn. Well, was there any part of it? Like, did it have any? Like, we can talk about. It. We yeah, can we'll talk yeah. about it. We like we. Was were there any redeeming qualities? You know, um, long pause. <laughs> long pause. I it it just felt very um, amateur, and it's just funny to me that. The, the Red Scare girls seem to shy so much away from sincerity in any way, um, you know, because I think they perceive that as like, you know, cringe, quote unquote. Sure. But but also it's like when you shy away from ever like like saying anything without irony, then you you never have to back up any of your statements like when also like shove. You can't make a good piece of art that is just fully ironic. Right. And and I don't think it is all the way, though, is the thing. Like, I couldn't tell um, some parts were comedy or, or drama. Um, and I also think that, you know, Dasha does really seem to care and find disgusting, like, the Epstein stuff. I know that she was, like, at the trial for some reason, like, with one of the, um, the girls. Uh, and I find that weird to me because I feel like they, they, and it like, so there's a line in the movie is like, you, you just want to be a victim, don't you? Like they hate when people self victimize, but it's like, how are you going to care about anything? Um, I, I find it, uh, just annoying and, um, morally selfish that I think they make fun of so many people for their, their struggles, whether, you know, it's like in some ways, some of that rings true is like, Yes, people like to self-victimize, but like there is a reason people are self-victimizing and we should be empathetic to that too. And also there's, not well, in every case. Like, so you there's know, like, this thing that like there's something that like something that if you don't have like if you don't sit and highly consider things in like a critical way, there is like a weird gray, you know, there are things when it comes to the idea of identifying as a victim that do create like a philosophical gray area that everybody is responsible for sort of teaming out for themselves, how they feel about how they are going to situate their identity. However, it's very interesting to me when victimhood as an identity is inherently created by and made necessary by the aggressive acts of other people. So to then put the onus of somebody like the onus on somebody who has, you know, in one way or another been a quote unquote victim, not by their own choice, but by the aggression of another person to then be like, you are identifying as a victim. It's like, well, what identity am I supposed to claim after? The identity you're supposed to claim is like waif. Yeah. That's, that's what they would like us skinny. And and that's what I hate about it is like, cause when I, when I, when I think about them, I'm like, I'm like, well, what would they say to me? And they'd probably just be like, you're ugly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and that's like, right. They, because in the, like, in some ways that is the most cutting thing you can say to like a woman because sure. of, of the, the world that the way, we live in. Exactly. Yeah. This is something that really bothers me too about that branding is like, they try to be ironically say like, no fatties. And it's like, there is no room in our society to ironically, quote unquote, be fat phobic. Like, no, because it is still like fat phobia is like such an insidious, you know, like thing that is still so pervasive. Right. And so clearly like, to be, they like, care a lot about not being fat. Like that's right. their worst nightmare. And it's just like, that's something to me that is like, 
that should be one of the easiest prejudices to um reflect on within oneself like obviously all of these all of these prejudices like we all hold different little puzzle pieces of them Mm -hmm. within ourselves having been you know socialized in the way that we as like people of different societies have been socialized but like that should be one of the easiest things to interrogate because it is so it's like you have all of the tools at this point like it is so easy yeah but they don't like, want to cuz cuz it's easy for them to live in in that world that's a thing that i think that's what annoys me is like that is i think a very easy path to take sure and i find it cowardly yeah and and you know that can go it's it's yeah yeah it's frustrating to me it's very frustrating like this just reminded me of something like while we're on the the fat phobia talk. So like, I, I think I've mentioned this person on the podcast before, but like she was an old friend of mine who I was very close to, who now is a micro influencer who has cut off me and all of our other friends that were in, you know, that friend group. Um, and she is somebody who on her, in her influencing career, um, she is very like, Everything she posts is, like, dress sustainably, like, buy these sustainable brands, which is, like, we don't have to get into the inherent irony of being, like, I'm a sustainability influencer. Buy, buy more, buy more. Buy more, yeah. buy more, buy more. And, like, that, the it, the self-interrogation that is just, like, either not happening or, like, that this person doesn't care about. We don't have to get into that. But it's, like, she will post these things. Like, the other day she posted from some sustainable small business this like jumpsuit or like this matching pants and shirt set. And I was like, that's actually pretty cute. Let me check that out. (laughs) And it was something where I was like, you know, I went on their website, the largest size that they had in the pants was a size 10. And I'm like, that's bonkers. How like these brands, like how do they fucking sleep at night? Like it truly is mind boggling to me that, even as like a, if you are like advertising yourself as sustainable and like people first and ethical, who are you making pants for? Like truly, like I'm looking yeah. around the room. It's like, I don't like, like literally just people under a size 10. Like really? That is like, yeah, that's, that boggles that's my mind. Crazy. Like what? Like most women in the US are like over a size 14. Like it's, yeah. it's just, I mean, yeah, but that's, I think that's goes into the whole like, you know, greenwashing of, of luxury now. Yeah. And that's what they're trying to, they are trying to still market to a particular body type, which is, um, stupid. Yeah. Um, and speaking of people of different body types and <laughs> clothing, um, we are talking today about, uh, you know, a book everyone's very excited for a highly requested topic, a very, kind of mainstay of young adult literature, especially in the, you know, the 2000s, 2010s range. Um, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants by Anne Brashares, which I believe was published in 2002. We all know the story. It's four girls. One of them, Carmen, goes into a thrift store and buys a pair of jeans. (laughs) The pants are A. Yeah, the pants are A. In a lot of ways, yes, because the pants are sort of an omnipotent, and they like know all. vaguely sort of magical realism, mm-hmm. you know, sort of you have to trip yourself into that to believe in the pants. But 
Carmen, one of the main four girls, goes into a thrift store, picks up a pair of pants without really thinking about it. And then the girls, they're all 15 years old, about to turn 16. They've been friends for life. Their mothers all became friends while they were pregnant and in a pregnancy aerobics class together. Mm -hmm. They're about to spend their first summer apart in their entire lives. And they're feeling a lot of angst about it because this is clearly going to be a moment of growth for everyone. And something, you know, when you go into those phases of life where you know you're about to experience something hardcore, but you're not quite ready for it. And they find these pants. They find that even though they all have wildly disparate body types, the pants fit and flatter each and every one of them. I'm calling bullshit on that. That is why these pants are magical. Yeah. Yeah. The pants are magic. The pants are magic. That's the point of the book. (laughs) You don't have to call bullshit on what is the point of the book. They say over and over again that the pants are magical. Yeah, they do say it. They do say the pants are magic. They're not like, oh, the pants, there's a specific scientific theorem that tells you why the pants work. No, the pants, it's like page two. They're like, by the way, these pants are magic. These pants are freaking magic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... The pants, they fit and flatter each one of them, so they decide that all summer, as they are in different exotic locales, some of them, while others are just working at local convenience stores, they send the pants back and forth from to one another, and they write letters to each other, and everybody, when they get the pants, is, like, empowered by the pants and, like, is probably wearing the pants for some sort of, like, big life moment or moment of growth. Um, initial reaction. You know, I liked it. it and it it was emotionally uh, affecting to me. Like it it's I liked um, how the um, the the way that each chapter went. I kind of liked the mingling of perspectives in every chapter versus I feel like a lot of books um, that we read on the podcast focus on one particular character's POV for an entire chapter. And I kind of liked the grouping you know, by theme um, of each chapter. And it's it's cute and it's a nice summer read. And, you know, we're reading it because we're apart. Yeah. We're kind of the sisterheads. Of no pants, the but wild the podcast, Fable. maybe. <laughs> the, we we got to find something at Wild Fable that will fit both of us. I feel Which, like, like wouldn't be that hard. That's no, a- <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, I feel like that's not that hard. Um, This book is, I think that what you're getting at and what you're talking about in the way that the chapters are structured. This book, from the outset, you can tell that it it assumes a lot more critical thinking skills and maturity in the reader, Mm -hmm. even though it's, you know, age-appropriate content-wise. It assumes a lot more maturity, intellectual maturity, perhaps that would be the right term, in the reader than a lot of the other books that we read. And a bit more reading in between the lines. Yes. Like, that's what I mean. It's like, it assumes, it doesn't spoon-feed you things. No. And what I wanted to say about the author of this, Anne Brashares, which this was written in 2001. Okay, yeah, Which wow. it feels more it feels more current than that yeah. to me. Um, but what I want to say about the author is that guess where she worked? Did you read this on her Wikipedia? I know that she worked for a publisher. And that publisher would be no. Alloy no. Entertainment. Yes. You're kidding but me. She only worked at Alloy for a very short time, but we, we're there's kind of an inescapable Alloy curse for us. Wow. I know. Well, so what's interesting is I didn't know it was Alloy, but I did know that the idea for the book came from a colleague of hers at Alloy now. Mm-hmm. I know. Um, the book idea came from a colleague of hers who was like, wouldn't it be crazy if like a bunch of like a group of friends all shared one pair of like magical pants that somehow fit all of them. Yeah. And, and that then would be crazy. 
Yeah, it would be crazy. And then she decided to write the book and the friend of hers was rewarded for the idea with like a heavy bonus from Alloy and a promotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that friend, Sarah Shepard. No, I'm just kidding. Can you imagine <laughs> that? Um, that friend? A. A. <laughs> <laughs> it was written in 2001. It definitely feels very contemporary. However, you have the basic marks of like big problematics. Yeah. You know, just like weird shit like unnecessary like weird like racial microaggressions right um and things like that but by and large it's pretty you know it's pretty like you could read this and like conceivably be like this is written in 2021 yeah i thought this book was incredible like truly i really did not expect to One, the pacing is incredible, like Mm -hmm. incredibly crafted. It is not long, but it's also not short. Nothing seems to run long. And that's one of the advantages of mingling different perspectives throughout each chapter. Because we get, that is always my thing with the click and Pretty Little Liars. It's like, okay, we get it. Move on, move on, move on. And they don't have to constantly be recapping what every character has thought, you know, from the beginning of the book onwards. Yes, there's no playing catch up of like when Carmen heard about what happened with Tibby, we just are led to assume through the writing that they all these girls know what's going on. Right, exactly. Um, By the kind of the inclusion of the letters that they write to one another. And it's clear that each of the girls is writing all of the other girls. Like there's no breaks in lines of communication. Like the author keeps us very on top of the perspective of like all of these girls are communicating. We don't need to play time. Like, knowing right. their reactions to things because also the the characters are so well written that we kind of mm-hmm. ima- we can imagine what how they would feel about certain things that maybe their friends are talking about or right. going through for sure i thought this book like for anybody dealing with like this book is essentially about like the hard and uncomfortable transitions for life and the hard and uncomfortable transitions that like everybody goes through in life whether it be death whether it be you know like becoming sexually active, whether it be like dealing with certain familial trauma, dealing with, you know, like coming to terms with, you know, flaws within oneself. All of those are like very neatly sort of woven throughout the book. And it's also like each character, like the, what I really got out of it is like, we are always going to have these big moments and growth points in life and hit these milestones and we're never mm-hmm. going to be ready for them. Right. And we are we might react to them in ways that are like betraying of certain flaws within ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely feel like for people our age, this book has a different message than it does for high schoolers. And that message is still very applicable. Like this idea of like, meeting life transitions as moments of self-reflection and as moments to choose to do better even when you're not ready. Yeah. Even the, there's a point in which Tibby is kind of reflecting like on on life as a whole. And she's like, well, maybe everyone is just allotted a certain amount of happiness per day. And it doesn't really matter like what, like, cause this is when her, um, her friend is, is dying of cancer. It doesn't really matter like what else is going on in your life, like you can find little, there will be little ups and downs and and moments. And I think that was like, that's, is a refreshing thing to take away, especially like Tibby's storyline, you know, other than, than her friend, it's like a very normal summer, you know, Mm -hmm. she's not going through any huge major milestones on her own. Right. And there's a lesson to be had there, like for like people our age about, you know, 
I, I think we are still in the point of our lives where we do feel like we have to be constantly aspirational, right. you know, and constantly moving to the next goal and, you know, yeah, whatever that may be, um, career-wise or personal life-wise. And this book was a good reminder that it's like life is kind of, you know, you're always going to have little ups and downs. Your totally. your stasis is not going to, your emotional stasis is not going to change necessarily because you make like a big transition or leap. Right. Yeah. So do you want to maybe just run us through very briefly what Tibby's storyline is? Yeah. So Tibby is the only one of the girls who is um, staying home over the summer. And her character is kind of um, snarky, uh, keeps to herself. Um, She's working at a drugstore over the summer. Um, And I thought this book did a great characterization of all the humiliating ways that it feels to, to work. Right. Uh, basically just to work, I guess, as a young adult. Um, because that transition into like one's first job and how jarring it is. And then like the sort of the subtle humiliations of like any kind of labor that after that point become commonplace to somebody who is 15 and starting their first job are appalling. Like that was kind of what I was getting out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's one point where she has to set up this like deodorant display and at the end of the day, her boss calls her back and is like, did you accidentally take anything with you? And she's like, no. or like he like goes to search her bags. And in her smock, she had like a roll of tape that she had used. And he was like, from now on, you have to put all your belongings in like a clear plastic bag. Um, like all these like little like slap on the wrists that that should honestly be like humiliating. Um, but that we grow accustomed to as we, you know, continue to to be in the workforce. Um, so she's working at the, the drugstore and she meets this girl, Bailey, who is younger than her, um, who has a very similar, like snarky, pushes people away energy to herself. And, um, Tibby learns that she is, uh, dying of leukemia. Um, and, uh, by the end of the summer, Bailey does pass away. Um, and so that's Tibby's main thing. Well, while she is also, she and uh, she was working on like a documentary basically. And then Bailey helps her out with that and kind of helps her um, with the film. And Tibby's story was, was very sad to me too, because we also get the sense that her parents are kind of, they, they have, so she, they had her when um, they were 19. She's 15, obviously, and then she has, like, two much, much younger siblings. And it seems like her parents are just kind of only paying attention to her siblings. Um, Yeah. And, you know, she has a lot of, like, loneliness that comes through. Um, I mean, it was kind of a depressing summer for her. Also, her guinea pig dies. Yeah. I was like, I knew this guinea pig's going to die. Yeah. When it was like, she's not eating. Yeah. Yeah. But she also, you know, like she comes to some really interesting moments of like maturity in that, like, you know, her little friend Bailey is in the hospital and she, Tibby is just so stressed out by the whole situation that she can't even communicate. She stays in bed for like four days, not answering calls from anybody. And And her parents like don't. Don't, don't really do, anything, do anything about it. Yeah. Which, you know, we know we're in really good hands with this author. That is supposed to tell us something. The fact that right. her parents do not engage with the fact Versus that this if child Versus if we're in Pretty Little Liars, the parents would be, like, actively mad at her. Yeah. 
Right, Tom Marin would be like, "Why don't you like do electroshock therapy or something?" <laughs> like it would be like, "It's 2001. Like, this hasn't been FDA approved yet." <laughs> yeah, he would be like, "Let's go. Why don't I drop you off at a labor camp or something? Yeah. Maybe you'll get happy." Yeah, it would be horrible. Um, so she finally then in the middle of the night one night is like, "Oh my god, like this girl is about to die," and like I'm focused mm-hmm. on myself and my depression with it and she goes and like is with her friend in the hospital and it's like this really good I don't know like it's just this really great like emotional apex of that storyline because she finally kind of realizes that she needs to deal with things up front rather than just like staying in bed and yeah you know not facing what she has to face so Let's talk maybe about Bridget next. Yeah, you run you run her down. So Bridget is what would you say? Daring? Is that like the right word? Like <laughs> what's the American impulsive? girl doll? Yeah. Phrase? Yeah. Daring, bold. Uh she's a soccer player and she's right. in Baja. Yes. Having she's very a blast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she is um a very, you know, accomplished high school soccer player and she's going to this camp where like all the best high school soccer players go in Baja, Mexico. Which Um, something that I kind of liked is she's not like, I love soccer. I love everything about soccer. She's just like, well, I'm good at soccer. So this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. I really like that too, because it feels like that feels more realistic than a girl who's like, all I think about is soccer. Like soccer is my fucking passion. When I'm on the field, that's the only time I feel like me. Like, yeah. Who fucking cares? So she goes to this soccer camp in uh, in Baja and she's like, Bridget is the kind of person. And this was actually a very like a very well written line that I really liked where at one point in the narration, they're referring to the relationship that Bridget has with her fellow campers who she's friends with. And it's like says something. I wish I would have pulled the quote, but it says something along the lines of like girls like you know, other girls or like timid girls always hated bold girls like Bridget because they, um, they thought they were annoyed by them, but really it was just because like she was so bold and so ready to ask for what she wanted that they were jealous of her. And I think that that's a really good characterization because Bridget is not the kind of character, like she's like very similar to people who irk me where it's like none of the rules apply to her in her mind there are no rules like she can like the first night she's at camp she's like actually I don't want to sleep in my cabin I want to go sleep outside right and the other girls are like oh like are we allowed to do this and she's like well they didn't say we weren't allowed so like obviously Mm -hmm. we are allowed and that's kind of how she lives her life she's very like she clashes with her soccer coach. Yeah, because, like, don't ask permission now, apologize later. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, because she she clashes with her soccer coach because, like, she is a show-off in her playing style. Like, she's mm-hmm. very, you know, the, her personality translates to how she plays soccer. So she, you know, is very showy during games. When, you know, they're beating a team by 12 points, she'll still go and score goal after goal after goal. Mm-hmm. Um, she is, you know, she's mouthy. She won't be, you know, if you tell her an instruction that she doesn't want to hear, she won't just be like, nod her head and continue on. Um, Mm -hmm. what I thought was funny is that they'd say at one point that Bridget's soccer coach, who's like 
over and over being like, you have to rein it in, you have to rein it right. in, is like 23 years old. Yeah. And so that to me was really interesting because that was the author subtly being like both parties are wrong in this situation because they right. are children. Like, right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and imagine having to like give a teen instructions. Oh, like hell on I can't earth. imagine. I'm still scared of teenagers. I 100%. I yeah. can't imagine working at a camp with a bunch of athletic teenagers. Oh like my that's gosh. my worst nightmare. And then they would be like we're all going to do the TikTok dance, and I don't think that you know what that is. Yeah. And I'd be like, no, I do know what it is. I do know what it is. Oh, I deleted TikTok off my phone. Oh, my gosh. I'm so on your 24th birthday. I deleted it like a week ago, maybe. And how do you feel better? I have missed it like while pissing. (laughs) I like how it's not while pooping. It's while it's while peeing. Yeah, it's, like, because I can't watch a whole YouTube video. Mm-hmm. But I think it's been ultimately, like, good for my brain that I'm not engaging. Mm-hmm. And I haven't missed it as much as I thought I would. Yeah. So I hope that it's, I hope that it takes, but I'm not sure that it will. Yeah, it. I've deleted it and then re-downloaded it in times of weakness. Yeah, I'm really hoping that I, I'm really hoping that I'm able to sort of conquer it. Yeah. That I'm able to beat TikTok. Yeah, you need to hashtag beat TikTok. Yeah. Bridget, though, her main story arc at camp, I would say, is that she becomes obsessed with this counselor named Eric, who is 19. Bridget, as we said, is 15, about to turn 16. Mm -hmm. And she becomes so obsessed with him, and she has such a big crush on him. And because she is who she is, she's not going to back down, and she's not going to follow the repeated, you know, warnings that, like, obviously you cannot... Mm-hmm. sleep with your camp counselor um and they have sex and what happens i mean well she becomes just despondent depressed out of her mind yeah and yeah you know what like i have absolutely been in that scenario so i yes. totally get it, it yeah. and it, that this i think this storyline was really um affecting to me because just the way like i've done that like had a hookup and then like laid in bed like all the next day. And it's not even, it's one of those things where, you know, an age difference aside in this, in this book, let's say it was like consensual or whatever. Like even for like consensual encounters, like you can still feel that like deep, deep depression pain after. Yeah. yeah. And, and you don't really know what to, what to do with it. Uh, yeah. Obviously he should not have um, had sex with her, but like I think that maybe she still would have felt this pain even if he was, like, a little younger. Yeah, there was a really great scene also, you know, pointing to the fact that we're in really good hands with this author where he's, like, afterwards he, you know, comes to her and is like, I take full responsibility for this. I should not have done that. Like, Mm -hmm. and I'm sorry. And she's upset that he, like, what's good about the interaction that I think is really cool is that she's both upset about the fact that he apologized, but also somewhat comforted by it. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that he sees her pain and that it's, it's real and that it's, you know, something that actually is affecting him and that is not totally like, you know, he's blind to. Right. Which I thought was really cool. Like the, there was some acknowledgement for once in us reading a book that a 19-year-old shouldn't Should fuck not. a 15-year-old. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, another thing that we have mentioned about Bridges' character is that um, her... And this was another thing where it was like, oh, this author can let us read between the lines. We know that her her mom is is dead, 
the whole time. And then we do learn um, that she had committed suicide Yeah, uh, at some point. And I think that gives a lot to Bridget's characterization where she is like, like it, there's one line where it's like after her mom died, she saw a psychiatrist and she looked at the notes from the session and it was like, Bridget is so steadfast in achieving her goals to the point of self-recklessness. Yes. And, and she's trying, you know, to, and we learned that like she would talk about, she kind of had a parallel to her mom and that her mom would like sleep for days essentially. And that's how Bridget um, kind of reacted to this, this sexual encounter. And uh, that's like stuff like that is what does make these characters very interesting because the author is not like Tibby is like this because blank, we unravel that as things go on. Yes. Yeah. Like you definitely are given the opportunity to be like, what is this pain point for this character? Why does this keep happening? And Mm -hmm. then it, it, you know, you are able to think through it over time rather than it being like, Aria loves boots. like <laughs> So that's why she's always wearing boots. If Aria doesn't have a feather in her hair, <laughs> she'll go if crazy. Aria's dad cheated on Aria's mom and Aria watched. So it's like weird. Wait, okay, what? Aria's <laughs> dad cheated on... I've never read that. <laughs> Sophie. Come on. Um, that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, yeah. So I, I, it's a really good. And then what eventually happens is like the other girls can tell from Bridget's letters that she's totally despondent. And mm-hmm. I believe it's Lena, right? That comes yeah. down to Mexico to like get Bridget. Mm-hmm. It was like, bitch, we're going home. Like pack up your ball. Yeah. <laughs> pack up your net, pack up your field. Yeah, pack up your little field and your little goalie gloves. We're out of here. Um, And so that's, you know, like a really good display of friendship. This book, I will say, for one thing, suffers from any book about a group of friends wherein it's like, I don't fucking believe all these girls are friends with each other. I don't yeah, believe I was that Bridget that and Tibby communicate. I don't see that. Yeah, I, I think they're, I think it works only in that they have this connection between their moms. And this was another thing. In, uh, that just to do a sidebar that I thought was interesting is their moms met and were really good friends for like maybe a year after the girls were born and then they all fell apart. And I think that's interesting because we yes. never really get to see the mom's perspective on why their friendship fell apart. Um, even more so now that like Bridget's mom uh, is dead. Yeah. I, I thought that was interesting too. And in that like in the, in the, intro to the book they are like well like adult things happen like life gets in the way uh you know people are married people have kids but we're not gonna let it happen but they do acknowledge that it's going to happen and in all likelihood if i were to you know write my extended theory on this novel i would say these girls do grow apart of course they do of course Mm -hmm. as adults it doesn't work the way like it used to they are so different in their values and in like how they carry themselves and what they want in the world and what they think is right and wrong. But like those things don't last into adulthood. Those are flash in the pan sort of childhood friendships that are important and soulful and beautiful. But like these girls after college are not going to be friends. And I think that's what's so cool about these books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Why don't you tell us about Lena? Lena, Lena, Lena. So Lena goes to Greece with her her energetic little sister Effie. Um, and Why she- the Effie character to me was too much about somebody I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And also the that all we know about her is that she cheats on her boyfriend. 
And Lena's like, oh, Effie. And she's 14. Yeah, she's 14 and she cheats on her boyfriend. So the, she's visiting her um, grandparents uh, in Greece who she's never met before. Um, and while she's there, her, gram- her grandma is like, oh, you should meet this boy next door who's like the grandson of their neighbors and good friends. Kosvos? Costas. Costas, okay. And at one point, uh, he clearly has a crush on her. And like, we see her characterization of being like, um, anytime a boy, like when boys learn, like, I'm, I don't want to like, you know, fool around with them or whatever, like, then they ignore me and they try to like spite me. And so I can't trust them. Um, so she doesn't really trust any boy at all. Uh, and at one point she goes to swim in this little lake and Kotso, she's skinny dipping and Kotso sees her. So then she comes back to her house and she says to her grandma, like, Kotsos is not a nice boy. And then her grandpa assumes that that means that he assaulted her. So he goes and punches uh, Kotsos's grandpa. And then the rest of, like, the summer is basically her trying to uh, redeem herself to Kostas because she realizes that she does like him. Which her sister is like, you're in love with him because you drew one picture of him. I was like, I don't. Well, I mean, this girl is fourteen, so. right? But they they don't really talk them. I mean, they they have they've had like three no. conversations. We have no idea who this motherfucker Costas is. Yeah. That also, this was a pain point for me in the book. Is that the main thing we know about Costas is revealed by Lena's grandmother, like three quarters of the way through the book, which she's like, by the way, the reason that Costas is here is because his entire family died in a car accident. And it's like Jesus, yeah. Don't let that be the only thing I know about a character's personality. Yeah. And that he, like, might be really good at soccer? Economics or something. <laughs> He's going okay. to go to school of economics. <laughs> he might the be really thing. good at soconomics. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, this storyline does not do it for me. It does yeah. it for me in the movie because they are in Greece. So you're like, oh, they're in Greece. Amazing. Um, I don't like the plot point of a confusion about whether or not a sexual assault has occurred. Yeah, me too. Or and me neither, I guess. I, I just don't, it's not that I, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it's like, I, it's not that I think that the author shouldn't have written it. And it's just that kind it's of some, uninteresting. Exactly. That's it's the like, main issue with it where it's like, well, clearly it didn't. So these old Greek people not knowing how to translate, right? Like right. that doesn't seem like my, the reader's problem. No, not my problem. Um, and it's not, it doesn't have, it doesn't, it does not work the way that I think she wants it to work, which is what does this character need? She needs an interrogation of like why she has all these walls built up in herself. And I feel like that could have been accomplished in ways other than she accidentally accuses somebody of a sexual assault that did not occur. Right. And then she can't find it in herself to explain to her grandparents what actually happened. To me, I don't, that doesn't make any sense because I think Right, even, wouldn't you just be like, no, he just saw me skinny dipping. Yeah, as soon as violence starts occurring between two old men, that's between when I feel buddies. like, yeah, which is not how you say, how you say grandpa in Greek too. How do you so say that's grandpa in Greek? Papu. Papu. <laughs> so Bopi, I mean, maybe it's a regional thing that I don't know about. Yeah. If you are also Greek, like hit me up, but I have never heard that in my 24 years of being Greek. So. Have you ever been to Greece? No. You do? You don't have any relatives there? None, like, none in, like, the immediate thing. My family's immigration was, like, my great-grandparents. Okay, yeah. So, 
they kind of pieced out what happens. It, I will say though, the way that they describe it in this book is very real of like people go like families go to America and it's like, they're just kind of like, like there are some people like the way that immigration has worked is like, there aren't a lot of people who, at least in my experience have family, both in Greece and like in America, like it's kind of like a yeah, and that also is not a huge country. It's an island. Yeah, I mean, nation. we've all seen my big fat Greek wedding. Like, there's a lot of like the American Greek. My family is very like heavily like an American Greek situation, mm-hmm. um, rather than like a Greek Greek, yeah, thing. Um, but my all of the times that my family has gone to Greece, like my grandparents and like my parents and aunts and uncles and stuff, I was like too young. Yeah. Um, but one day we should go. Got to stack them dollars. Got to go start a fight between two old men. Oh yeah, baby. But that's something I remember reading this book as a child and being like, where are they getting Boppy from? Like, did this chick just make it up? Please. Seriously. I mean, like I'll look it up when we're done. I feel like and she if like I'm confused wrong, like Bubby, like, yeah. like a Jewish term for grandmother. And she like somehow that cartwheeled in her mind. So she's like, oh, actually Boppy is what I'll, right. I'll call I mean, him. it could be something, like I said, like I, like my family is very Americanized. Like my Greek mm-hmm. relatives and my connection to that is very through the lens of like an immigrant experience right. rather than like what actually happens in Greece. But like, I've never heard that. So it must be wrong. And if you use it, you are wrong and bad. Um, Yeah. And I don't stand with you. Um, Yeah. So I don't know. This is definitely a snoozer. I also thought it was, why is Lena the one that goes and gets Bridget like that? Yeah. I guess maybe she's like being bold there. Maybe I guess that because their their roles are kind of switched there and that Lena is usually too timid to do anything and and Bridget is usually very bold and is is feeling kind of despondent. Yeah, yeah. the Lena character, I mean, this is always my my annoyance with like quote unquote shy characters as like with Emily. It's right. just like just say like I don't know. I'm just like I get so bored with this self-pity of I'm shy. Yeah, that doesn't work for me as like a pain point. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. when you present to me a character, if the thing is they have to get over the fact that they're shy. I think it's specifically perhaps like an adult perspective that we mm-hmm. bring to that judgment too, where it's like acting like either Emily or Lena acts as an adult is just flat out unacceptable. Right. Like just like that kind of person. It's like, fuck you, get away from me type thing. <laughs> because it is a thing you have to mature past. And right. I, it's like a very self-centered way of being a, uh, you know, a teen. a teen. Yeah, and I get it. Like, I get it. But yeah, as an adult, it's like you just gotta get over it in some ways, right? Like, just the thing where you can't even where violence has occurred because of a mistranslation of something mm-hmm. that you said, and you cannot stop it. It's like that's just like, come on, girl. It's similar to me to Emily running out of the room anytime a conflict occurs. It's just like, stop doing this over and over again. You are not the only person alive. Yes. Yeah. Um, So I guess with all of that, we can talk about Carmen, which, you know, I do feel the most connection to Carmen. And that's why I think I find her to be like the most interesting character. Mm -hmm. Because she also is the character who gives us. So, cause the books are like third person. The, the majority of the chapters are third person, but the prologue and the epilogue are first person from Carmen's perspective. Right. Which was interesting, and I liked the way that her characterization was written. It it very yes. much felt like a teen girl. 
Yes. Um, so she, um, she, her parents are divorced. Her mother is Puerto Rican. Her father is, you know, I guess generic white. And they divorced when she was seven years old. And her dad, the, all of the girls live in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And Carmen's dad up and left and went to South Carolina, yeah. ostensibly for work purposes. And so she spends the summers usually going back and forth between her mom and her dad's place. But this summer, she's going to do the entire summer at her dad's place. And she gets in the car with her dad as he picks her up from the airport. She's so excited because she feels like she has this bond with her dad that is like she feels more personally similar to her father than she does to her mother. So she's Mm -hmm. always so excited to spend time with him. And he picks her from the airport and they're talking about all the things they're going to do that summer. And then all of a sudden they pull up to this unfamiliar house and she's like, Yo, what what's this? This isn't your apartment. And he reveals to she's her, also like, she's fantasizing kind of on the way there about like, oh, I bet his house will kind of be like a bachelor pad. Yes. His apartment and I'll help him fix it up. And like, you know, I'll make fun of him, but like, it'll be fun. Like we'll go to Bath yeah. and Body Works and get him a tea kettle. Like all these like you know, bonding moments that she's very excited to have with him. The expectations that she has set end Mm -hmm. up being very different from the reality, which is that he has become engaged to this woman, Lydia, eh, who has two children, Paul and... Krista. Krista. I was never going to remember that name. Paul and Krista. And one of the big points of conflict for Carmen is that this family is very white. Yeah, they're blonde. And her father is white. So when it comes to like the children look more like him than she does her own father. So it's this problem of she has this problem of looking at this family and literally not seeing where she could fit in. Yes. And so uh, the conflict between her and her father basically escalates, you know, because of the differences in. Well, one, she's caught off guard in a really inappropriate way. Right. And um, and her father kind of makes that her problem. Her father 100%. runs away from the situation of the obvious conflict between, you know, and, and the her step-siblings are, like, basically perfectly nice to her, as as is the stepmom. Yeah. Um, but, but obviously, you know, as a teenager, you're not going to be super gracious if you just— learned that your dad um, has totally, like, essentially almost remarried a whole new family. Right. Um, And her dad is, like, unwilling to mitigate any of that situation at all. And, in fact, he was too afraid to tell her until, like, they literally got there. This situation, the idea of the dad not telling her until they got there, is way more realistic than it seems. And that's what's so shitty about it. Yeah. Where, like, I obviously I don't I don't know anybody who's been in this exact same situations, but there are certain anecdotes from people in my life and things that I've witnessed that have been so crushingly similar to this. Yeah. Where it's like, what is it with these men and their children who obviously they love and want to have a relationship with mm-hmm. and not telling the damn truth because they're too scared? Right. Exactly. What is yeah. it? Like, what is that? Why is that a trope? You know, I think that some of it, it, it's like almost like, uh, you know, and I'm not saying that people who are divorced are necessarily running away from the marriage. But particularly if you divorce and you have children, I think that's hard. And I think it's hard as a parent to prioritize yourself 
essentially over like what your children want. Um, yeah. Which, and obviously like, you know, in the long run, it's like, yeah, usually it's better to have your children have two happy households than one unhappy household. Um, but I think that that is so much emotional toll within oneself and, you know, seeing your child's understanding of the situation, whether or not that's a, that child's view is accurate, like internalizing that essentially that a lot of men, you know, because of the way that we raise boys and men in this, you know, in this like society, um, don't really know how to deal with it all. And the easiest thing is just to go by yeah. or just to lie. Like it's easier to lie than it is to, to actually like disappoint your child. Essentially. Sure. Did you read in the New Yorker the same issue that the new Sally Rooney story was in and that there was an essay by Emma Klein in there? There was a another story, I'm forgetting the author's name now, that was like characterizing a discussion between two middle-aged men. Um, and it was like one of the it was occurring, you know, it was like a contemporary thing where it was occurring over quarantine. And it was like these two middle-aged men and then the wife of one of the men, uh, both were very wealthy and they were just talking through like what was going on with their children from different marriages. And the kind of the theme of the story in one way, you know, cause there was, it was a really long story. There was a lot going on, but in one way, one of the things that it seemed like we needed to be getting out of the story was that people who have fathered children are able to like, distance themselves from certain responsibilities on the basis of like mothers have more of a both a natural connection with children like that's what they're positing that's not what I'm saying and they have certain advantages in like the legal process and so like well I tried but you know I can't possibly be held responsible for this because the legal process ended up you know quote-unquote favoring this woman in any sort of like custody discussion right um and that's kind of what reminded me of this where it's like there is a na- a more natural perhaps ability because of the way we as a society situate these things both um socially and legally that like allows men the idea to be like well i'm actually doing a good thing by not pressing a conflict here about yeah how close i'm gonna be to my child yeah, for sure. Um, and that was what was really good because sort of the, you know, and it all comes to a head, the conflict between Carmen and her father when she goes to get fit for a bridesmaid dress. Speaking of fat phobia and clothing, she gets... Yeah, she, this scene was hard. Really hard because it's like, it is so crushingly realistic of like, she goes to get fitted for a bridesmaid dress for the wedding with uh, Lydia, his wife-to-be, and Krista, her daughter, And the woman who is making the dresses is just totally flustered by Carmen having a, you know, a bigger body Mm -hmm. and is like, this won't do. Oh, I'm going to have to start from scratch. And it's focused more on like how inconvenient Carmen's body is to her than like the fact that like this is a young woman's body. Right. And so she leaves totally freaked out. She's like pissed that nobody acknowledges how fucked up it is and ends up. Well, she comes down to dinner. And like, basically she had, she's, she's feeling bad because she was, she knows that she was kind of lashed out towards Lydia, the, the stepmom. And she knows that that wasn't totally fair to her. 
um, during this encounter. And so she comes down and t- for dinner and like Lydia, like totally like everyone is acting like nothing happened at all. And her dad's like, you know, going up to change and um, Lydia says something like, oh, like, how was your day? And someone else is like, oh, it was good. And then Carmen's like, I had like a really bad day. And like no one acknowledges it. Like they find it awkward. And so she like storms out of the house. And I totally got that. I've totally like been in that situation before, Uh, you know, with friends or with parents where it's like people would rather not like deal with like your emotions you know, whether they be fair or not. Right. But, but it, it, that that is, it's so much more hurtful when people aren't even willing to, like, acknowledge, like, they're not willing to make themselves a little bit uncomfortable to help you out of your, you know, discomfort, which may not be fair to ask of other people all the time, but certainly when it's your child. Right. <laughs> you can. Right. It's like, it seems like in this family that she has found herself thrust into, any uncomfortable display of emotion it's kind of assumed that we're going to give this person space and they're going to get over it and we're not all going to come talk about it because Carmen comes home assuming that her father has been told about what happened because to her that seems like the way that it would work in that family and but it's ends up being the opposite like he has no idea he hasn't heard a thing about this and Mm-hmm. That triggers her into leaving the house and she stays out for a while, assuming. And then she's like, you know what? This is stupid. I'm sure they're all out looking for me. Like, I'm being dramatic. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to go home. I don't want to cause a scene. But when she arrives at the house, she looks in the window and they're all just sitting at the table eating. Yeah. As if she hasn't been, quote unquote, missing for hours. Yeah. And so she does what any reasonable teenager would do, which is throws a rock through the window. Yes. Um, go, girl. Throw that rock. Yeah, go, girl. Throw rocks. Um, and then she takes a bus home to D.C. Mm-hmm. Which this, it made me sad that her dad, like, didn't. The only thing the dad does is call the mom to be like, did she get home fine? Yeah. And he's not like, I want it. Like, and she is still the one who has to. Um, initiate um, the call with her dad, right? Or does he call Yeah. Him? No, she calls him. But this yeah. is classic bad dad behavior. Like, that's what's so good about this storyline mm-hmm. is, like, the dad never gets better. She just decides that... She'll have she, to learn how to deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she she feels a little more sympathetic towards the step family. Because 100%. She, and, and this is obviously, like, I get it. But, like, she is not really understanding that... She, she like, for... The bulk of the book is refusing to say that she's mad at her dad. She's putting all her anger on the step family. Like she doesn't want to admit that to herself because she feels so like she already has such a limited connection with her dad. She essentially doesn't want to screw that up anymore. And I think in some ways she sees her dad as being, um, she kind of puts him on a pedestal, even though he is the one who essentially like uh, has abandoned her. When he has abandoned yeah. her, like, and that's what she has to come to realize is that he's a bad dad. And if she's going to have a relationship with him, it's going to have to be initiated by and stewarded by her. Right. Because he kind of, she's like talking about how her mom is always like curious about her dad and has like questions, but her dad is never curious about her mom. And that hurts her too, because She's like, well, he could, he very easily like threw my mom away. Like he could do that to me too. And that's how she feels when she's like, oh my God, he has a whole new family. And it's also the thing of like, you know, you should, one should in theory, if they were, you know, going about the proper, I don't want to say the proper, whatever. 
one one should in theory have some questions about the person raising your child. Yeah. Who you have essentially abandoned, but he doesn't. Like he seems to be right. living on his own. He's like hands off program. Yes. Cuz that's easier. Not well he's a, he's kind of a Tom Marin in that way. Yeah, he is. He's going to run for senator in the next book. Yeah, and he this man hates teen drinking and fingering. You know what, Sophie, I just thought of this. Do you think that there's a um, porn parody of Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants? Sisterhood of the Traveling Panties? There has to be, because there's a movie. Yeah, that's true. the movie was big. I told you that I found, or did you see that I I did find The Bar Rescue? Yeah, but I I don't don't think there's a John Taffer in it. Which is, how? I just searched Bar Rescue porn parody. No, I mean, like, how (laughs) would you make a Bar Rescue porn parody with not a non-John Taffer. Like, every I don't think that they, porn I don't, <laughs> actor looks like John Taffer. That's, dude, truly. Like, like truly, there are men, there would be so many men chomping at the bit. I mean, in my mind, my headcanon is that John Taffer is asexual biromantic. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> because he, I, I feel like he's obsessed with getting mad at people when they objectify women. Um so but, he has to be bi bi romantic in uh, there, order to I just feel, like feel that way. I, I there's just been moments on the show where I'm like he's so interested. There's this episode this season where he um, goes and um, like is helping a gay bar out, and John Taffer like tears up so many times during the episode, and I'm like he feels a personal connection to this. Okay. okay. Um, that's my, that's obviously, John Taffer is one of the people where it's like, I know that he's a Republican, you know? No, I mean, we've talked about this before. We, like, yeah, we you're can't, allowed to like John Taffer. Yeah, I don't I, give a fuck. Like, I love him. And I feel like he's a single issue voter and he loves small businesses. And I'm like, you know what? I can respect that. Like, good for you, John, whatever. You do what you do you. But um, I think, I don't, I feel like the people who made this this porn didn't, they don't have no concept of of bar rescue because it was like these horny bar owners get more like like they think they're going to get a lesson in running the bar, but they get a lesson in like sex instead. And it's like so you're saying that there's multiple horny bar owners like number you've already failed. Yeah. It has to be just one horny bar owner. Right. Who John Taffer, horny John Taffer comes in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I oh. also thought the of the other day. I thought this was funny. Um, porn parody of Boyhood. <laughs> Manhood. No. <laughs> what? Not involving the boy. I'm just like title wise. That could involve Patricia. Oh, Arquette's this character. isn't real. You know. Oh, thank oh no. I was like, what the fuck? No, Boyhood no. This Manhood. was just okay, a that's little, good. little thing I thought of in my mind. No, that's. I, I thought you found this, and I was no, like, I hope truly. I hope to God not. They filmed it over like ten years or whatever. Oh my god. <laughs> Kill me. A porn that they filmed over 10 years. Yeah. Everybody's like. But everybody's like adults. So like nobody ages that much. Right. But it's it's just kind of sad because you're like, like you're just deteriorating. Fuck. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. What I really like about the Carmen storyline is so as the conflict happens in the dress shop, she's leaving and Paul, her stepbrother to be, Mm -hmm. has witnessed this conflict and he tells her. You antagonize people. Yeah. And so for the rest of the book, you know, as she goes back to D.C., she has to sit on that. And it does become this moment because I feel like until you are the age that these characters are 15, you don't think about the way the patterns of your interactions 
in a meaningful way and how that implicates feelings inside of yourself. Like, I feel like that that is a a connection that needs to be made, like, on, like, the crest of adulthood. Mm-hmm. And so, the like, that to me, that was a very, a very, like, worthwhile sort of conversation for a book for teens because it's like, wow, I don't think I ever thought about that at that age. Like, this idea right. that even if it wasn't my fault, I could be holding carrying myself in a way that was antagonistic. Right. I just found that very, very, a very worthwhile. You don't have a lot of moments to self-examine your own behavior because I think other people are constantly doing it for you. Sure. You don't have a lot of time to self-reflect on, on yourself. Right. I don't know. Is there anything else you want to bring up? No, I mean, I'm excited to like read more of this series. Yeah. I thought it was cute and nice and uh, we will be covering the movie on our Patreon. And I'm excited for that because I, I'm excited to see what's different. I don't think different. I've ever seen the movie. Oh, really? Mm-mm. The movies are good. I'm excited to see what's changed because the movie I want to say came out in like 2006, mm-hmm. seven range. So there's going to be some, I would say probably some updates and interesting things that happen. And I'm excited. And the the performances, I mean, like the cast, the cast, Alexis Waddell, really America Ferreira, Blake Lively, and. Amber Tamblin. Amber Tamblin. Like, that's just such a, that's such a quintessential, like, that it's, it's period. It's quite good casting. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, like, all of these characters, and I just, I'm really excited to see the ways that, because the, the, the characterization and the relationships in this book are so literary. Like, they feel mm-hmm. so much like something that can only be done in a novel. So I'm excited to see the way that it translates into what, how the movie works. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I, I don't know. I'm very. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, so while you're at it, subscribe to our Patreon because that episode should be coming out sometime this week. Like us. Don't like us. We don't have a Facebook page. Jesus Christ. Um, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Both of those handles are at girls like us show. But also like us in a general Like sense. us. Just, yeah. Yeah. Please. Like us. What's your problem? Like, like us. us. Enjoy us. Like me. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Share us on your Instagram story, on your Twitter. Retweet us, please. Share us with the world. Um, that is like our our surefire like way that we grow buy our merch our merch is so cute and so fun it is out now through t public but we have a link in our bio can you um, I, my my parents just got their merch so i do have a photo of my dad wearing it please if we can get if you can get a photo of your dad you sophie as well as our listeners the dad wearing our shirts i think that would be good yes that was dad's kind of in glu merch yeah yeah give it hashtag dad in glu dlu dad's like dad's us. like us oh you got it there we go we are a part of the frolic podcast network so find our frolic sorority sisters at frolic.media slash podcasts and our theme music is by the lovely band leggy which if you've listened this long leggy may be coming on the pod yeah sometime soon so get sometime ready. soon so that's a little teaser all right enjoy your week everybody bye, bye. Girls like us don't